This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on Episode 3, we visit Montana farmer Chris Westergaard to hear about what's on his mind as he approaches planting time. Then we talk to plant pathologist Dr. Michael Vunch about some of the soil-borne and seed-borne diseases farmers will be managing in pulses. If you're new to pulse crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show follows some pulse crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. One significant challenge to pulse growers is disease pressure. As we start to take a look at those diseases, I think it's always best just to start off at the farm. If you listen to the first couple episodes of this podcast, you got to hear from North Dakota farmer Ryan Ellis and also Tim McGreevy, who leads the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, but also farms himself near the Idaho-Washington state line. Today, though, we visit Montana Pulse farmer Chris Westergaard. So I farm with my dad in northeast Montana, about 20 miles from Saskatchewan, about eight from North Dakota, and we raise peas and lentils mostly, occasionally chickpeas in rotation with derm or flax or spring wheat sometimes up here. Been doing it since about 2000, 2001. The Westergaards were growing durum and decided they needed to add additional crops to their rotation. Peas, lentils, and chickpeas have worked well for them, although Chris says he does best with peas. It's still pretty cold up in northeast Montana, but preparations are already underway for the coming year. Well, this time of year, um, generally you're thinking about you know, your seed seed source. Is the stuff you're keeping, is it good enough quality? Does, is the germination good enough? Uh, in pulses especially, you want to be worried about seed-borne ascochyta. Most labs can test for that. So that's something you got to keep in mind is you know your seed quality. Uh, where you, you know, the fields you're going to put them on, although generally you have that ironed out beforehand, since you got to kind of keep your weed pressure in mind because your weed control options are somewhat limited in pulses versus grasses. And just by the nature of the plants, they're not as competitive as like a grass like wheat is. So you're thinking, thinking about your potential weed problems. You're thinking about your seed sources. You know, what kind of inoculant do you want to use? Uh, what brand of inoculant? You know, what type of seed treat, if any, usually they're recommended because they're usually, we see them early when the soil is cold. You know, try and get going and if uh, everybody waited for optimum soil temps, you'd never get anything done. <laughs> Remember what Chris just said there about needing to get things planted early. That's going to be relevant as we talk about the data behind planting timing later in the show. We're also going to dive deeper into seedborne ascochyta that you heard him mention there, as well as other diseases pulse growers like Chris have to manage. For the Westergaards, though, there's no question which disease problem they have to battle most often, especially in chickpeas. Ascochyta is by far the most prevalent and the most yield-limiting in chickpeas. It can be in peas and lentils too, but just by their genetic makeup, chickpeas seem to be way more susceptible to it. Before we turn our attention over to the research that's being done on ascochyta and other diseases in pulse crops, I asked Chris if he could just share how these disease symptoms show up for him during the growing season. Generally, you'll start seeing uh, brown lesions on leaves or stems, and that's, that's true regardless of species, whether it's peas, lentils, or chickpeas. It just by their nature, the chickpeas are way more susceptible to having a catastrophic effect from high infestation of ascochyta, which their growing season's a lot longer and they live through that cooler, wetter time in September or August, that 
tends to be where it manifests itself. Not that you can't have them in peas or lentils too, but they're a bigger problem in chickpeas. As farmers like Chris Westergaard battle these disease problems, researchers like Dr. Michael Vunch are working hard to better understand the problems and potential solutions. Dr. Vunch is a plant pathologist at the Carrington Research Extension Center at North Dakota State University, where he's worked for about 10 years. We'll kick things off with Dr. Vunch talking about seed-borne diseases, including the one you've already been hearing about, Ascochyta. The main thing that people worry about in chickpeas, of course, is ascochyta. Field peas and lentils, ascochyta is an issue as well, seaborne ascochyta. It's not as critical to have basically almost 0% seaborne ascochyta because ascochyta on those crops is not nearly as devastating. The other diseases that we worry about on the field peas would be bacterial blight, Pseudomonas syringa. All right. And on the lentils, to a certain extent, anthracnose and botrytis sometimes come up. And on chickpeas, actually, botrytis sometimes comes up. The anthracnose on the lentils is really not a problem if you have a history of anthracnose in that field. All right. If you have a history of anthracnose in that field, I wouldn't worry about it too much. From what we understand, I mean, the rate of seed to seedling transmission of anthracnose is very, very low. Frankly, the greenhouse studies, the ghost chamber studies trying to prove that type of transmission have been unsuccessful. They haven't been able to prove it. It's be a little risky to say that it can't happen because we know what happens, say, on dry beans. But uh, basically, if they already have a history of anthracnose, uh, it's probably not a big deal planting that type of seed because the amount of CDC and the transmission they're going to get, by all means, is likely to be very low. Second, the seaborne anthracnose tends not to occur at very high levels even in a highly diseased crop. But where I would worry about it is a field that doesn't have a history of anthracnose because you're going to introduce it this way. Yeah, anthracnose on lentils is horrible. You can't get rid of the thing. Once you have it, it's there forever. The uh, anthracnose pathogen creates these resting structures uh, called microsclerotia that persist in the soil from all kinds of purposes indefinitely. I, I mean, I suppose if you rotate it out for maybe 30 years, maybe you can get rid of it. But I mean... For all, all practical purposes, you know, it's indefinite. The um, seedborne botrytis is really a question of it can cause some sand loss if the levels are high enough in the seed lot, but it can be managed pretty effectively with, with fungicide seed treatments. I wouldn't worry about it so much for introducing the disease into the field because botrytis is pretty well ubiquitous, and it's a very sporadic disease that only occurs uh, a handful of circumstances when you really have a wet conditions during that bloom and pod fill period. And by all means, it wouldn't have been introduced from the seed. It's just a ubiquitous pathogen to begin with. So it's really a bigger and stand establishment issue. And if you use any of these standard fungicide seed treatment packages, it's going to help with that. And the ascochyta is a significant concern on chickpeas particularly because you want to eliminate that additional source of the pathogen into your crop. That is a very serious way of introducing disease. And the seed treatments help a little bit, but they do not give 100% control of the seed to seedling transmission. I want to talk more about seed treatments and not just for the seedborne diseases like those that Dr. Vunch was just describing, but also for soil-borne diseases. My overarching questions, are seed treatments effective and are they necessary in all cases? Well, in the chickpeas, for instance, you're more likely to be able to get away with not treating if you wait. 
when you're looking at pythium and rhizoctonia, and uh, these are diseases of cold, wet soils, uh, cool, wet soils. Well, pythium is more less temperature sensitive than the rhizoc, but the big thing is is that when you're planting into colder soils, germination is slower, and you have a long, longer window for infection. Uh, you're much more likely to be able to get away on a chickpea planting without a seed treatment if you wait in, until the soils are quite warm, say the third week of May or so. Uh, but again, you're looking at the flip side of the issue, which is if you do get hit with wetter weather in, in July and into August, that you've got some possibly senescence problems on varieties such as CDC Frontier that are r- relatively long maturity. On the early planted peas, and this would be planting in mid-April into about the first week of May, so it'd be early to normal planting date. Uh, I'd say normal planting date would be that last week of April into the first week of May for at least for North Dakota. And mid-April would be early, like April 15. Uh, In those early dates, we see that the seed treatments that have efficacy against rhizoctonia and pythium but also have efficacy against Fusarium. This would be your standard seed treatment packages, something like an Obvious or Vibrans Max Pulse out of, out of Syngenta, Obvious out of BSF, or some of these packages sold by, say, uh, Great Northern Ag or Pulse USA that use some older generic chemistries. These packages really target Pythium, Rhizoctonium, Fusarium. And what, we, what we've seen is on the field peas, in those early and traditional planting dates on fields with a long history of pea and or lateral production, that we get really quite a strong return for those. So I guess in summary, in chickpeas, I think um, you, when you're plant, it, I think the take home is that when you're planting early, I'd say last week of April into the first week of May, anytime you're planting into cold soils, you definitely want to have a seed treatment when you're planting relatively late, say the third week of May, and the soils are warm and you think you can get quick emergence and the soils are not too wet and doesn't look like the forecast holds something that might saturate the soils. You can probably get away with not treating the chickpeas in that scenario if you're looking to save some money. On field peas, we really have a deep enough data set to make some recommendations on lentils. We're still learning. But on early planted field peas, That'd be mid-April, which would be very early, into the first week of May, which would be more standard timing. Late Last week of April, first week of May would be standard planting date for central and northern North Dakota. In fields that have a long history of pea and lentil production, and thus a buildup of these soilborne pathogens, we've seen a strong response to seed treatment with a traditional seed treatment fungicide, and that would be targeting Pythium, Fusarium, and Rhizoc. As you get into mid-May and the soil temperatures rise and it becomes more favorable for Phanomyces, we see more of a response, an increased response to Intego Solo. Frankly, as you delay your planting, we get increasing responses to Intego Solo, which is the only seed treatment registered for, for use on peas and lentils that has efficacy against Phanomyces root rot. And Phanomyces is a warm soil pathogen. And so the warmer the soil, the stronger the response to phanomyces. We have full episodes lined up later in this podcast series dedicated to fusarium and phanomyces. So we won't get too in-depth on those here today. 
But do you remember earlier when Chris Westergaard made the comment about needing to get out to the field and plant early? Turns out there's some serious data to back that up, uh, at least when it comes to root rot in peas. So we've been running uh, planting date studies where we plant these field peas into fields that have a history of Fusarium aphanomyces root rots. Basically, fields that have just had, had a long history in pea and lentil production. And what we have found, on the field peas at least, very consistently, every single study we have done, early planting reduces the severity of your root rot, and it reduces it by a lot. And when I say early planting, I'm talking, depends on the year, it's between April 15th, I think the earliest we planted was April 15th, and the latest that early planting was was like April 25th or so. I mean, every year is different, right? Some years you can get in the field in April 15th and some years you can't. But basically when we planted that first week that we were able to get into the field, all right? And this is usually when people will be going with spring wheat, not with peas, okay? We, we cut a root rot in half, okay? I mean, it was dramatic. Once you waited to a normal planting date, that'd be anywhere from 10 to 14 days after that initial one. So if we planted April 15th, the second planting date would have been, you know, April 25th to 30th. If we planted April 25th, the second planting date would be more like May 5th, May 7th, something like that. But once you went, went to that second planting date, there was a lot more root rot, okay, which is there'd be a traditional planting date time. If you planted late, <laughs> mid, mid-May, then the thanomyces gets horrible, really horrible. So planting date is a really, really important tool for managing these Fusarium anaphanomyces root rots. The field that we have here in Carrington also has Fusarium wilt in it. And it's that complex of those three that we've been managing very well. And it's, a, I mean, it's a question of, are you going to have 27 bushel peas or 50 bushel peas? It's that big. And that said, we've done this on fields with, Native root rot pressure, we have run either six or seven planting date studies now over the last three years and uh, over three different locations. Every single time planting early, minimize your root rot problems with whatever mixture of Fusarium and Aphanomyces these fields had. So if the data is so clear, why don't all farmers just plant early? Well, like everything else in farming, there are trade-offs and there are risks. Even though it might always be better for root rot, Dr. Vunch urges farmers not to abandon their common sense and, of course, other agronomic factors. So, do you always maximize yield planting early, even if the root rot is a major limiting factor in that field? And the answer is no, okay? It's because, again, agronomic performance is a product of multiple factors. Root rot is only one of the constraints, okay? So this last year, we did plant on April 16th at two sites that we had in West Central North Dakota and Montreal and McLean counties, all right? And these are on-farm sites. And if um, your listeners remember or were in that area, they certainly remember, it was within a week of that planting date that they got over a foot of snow, and there are a couple nights where the temperature dropped down to 19 Fahrenheit, okay? And so in this case, actually the root rot in the second planting date was fairly comparable, even though it was a little bit higher. But you can imagine the peas that went in after that snowstorm, 
uh, agronomically did a little better than the ones who went, went in before it. <laughs> the point is that you don't abandon your common sense here. In this case, that snowstorm wasn't on our on the radar screen when we planted, but it had been a cold end of the winter. And so we knew that going out on April 16th was a little risky. But again, it's a planting day study. And what when we run these, we want to figure out when are there exceptions to planting early being agronomically optimal, okay? Because I was assuming even if we got slammed by a snowstorm or something, it would still be better for the root rot. And I was right. The emergence between the first and the second planting days, which are almost two weeks apart, was very close. Uh, again, when we run these planting day studies, we run over multiple years, multiple conditions, because, you know, the last thing I wanted to say is, okay, plant early because you always minimize your root rot and you always maximize your yield. I mean, what I'd like to do is say, okay, these are the scenarios in which you can maximize your yield planting earlier, and these are the scenarios where you can't. Yes, okay, it looks like you can always minimize your root rot, but remember, your root rot is only one of many components that go into your yield potential. So we've discussed planting timing considerations, seed treatments, and several seed-borne and soil-borne diseases and pulses. There's just one more that hasn't come up yet that Dr. Vunch wanted to make sure to mention. Now, the only other disease I have not talked about is bacterial blight, the peas, pseudomonas. I didn't list that initially, but um, this came onto the radar screen uh, a few years ago um, when some of our seed producers were selling field peas down into Colorado and Nebraska, uh, these warmer areas, okay? There was a surge of interest in field pea production in that area. Then coinciding with the surge of interest, they got these horrible weather conditions this one year. I think it might've been 2015, maybe it's 2016. And they had a series of really severe thunderstorms that rolled through when the peas were at mid-vegetative growth. These were storms with really, really torrential rains, some hail, very strong winds. But the type of conditions that even if you don't get the hail, the wind is strong enough that you have enough windblown sand and other debris that you get a lot of mechanical damage to the crop. And then combine that with the moisture and you have a perfect condition for bacterial blight. And what happened down there is they had uh, some really severe meltdowns of their field peas from bacterial blight. And we occasionally see that up here too, but it's, it's rare. And the bacterial blight pathogen, what, what it does is it actually colonizes the surface of the plant without causing any symptoms at all as that plant's growing. And it's on the surface of the plant just hanging out, <laughs> doing nothing. And then you get mechanical damage and a bunch of moisture, and it's able to move in. So going back to the story with Nebraska and Colorado, they get this really severe weather. And these guys are new to field peas. They, produced, they bought their seed up here, and there was talk flying around of lawsuits that they were going to sue the, the, the seed sellers for selling them seed that had seaborne pseudomonas syringae. So anyhow, we ran a series of studies looking at the seaborne component and how important it was. And these were, these were really laborious, kind of unpleasant studies to run because you, you have to establish very large plots and then separate them by a pretty long distance because the bacterial blight is splash dispersed It'll move plant to plant. So you can't just have little plots right beside each other. So what we found is this. 
whether we planted disease-free seed or disease seed, we got bacterial blight. And even down at the oak site, which doesn't have a history of producing peas, we purposely chose the oak site, not because they produced peas in that area, but because it was an area that was kind of virgin territory for peas. Oaks is in southeastern North Dakota. But yeah, in Carrington, we have a long history of growing peas. The thing is, is that the Pseudomonas syringa is kind of a ubiquitous organism out there. And what we found was that we got bacterial blight regardless. Planted disease seed increased the bacterial blight, but not by a lot. And we were able to make up, as long as that, it, it, that disease seed lot was only a moderate level of seed-borne bacterial blight, i.e. The, the crop that you harvested wasn't totally annihilated, it just had low levels of bacterial blight in it, we were able to make up that yield loss associated with the seaborne pseudomonas syringa by treating with streptomycin. At this point, that's not registered, but we can, with, you know, if there's enough interest from these seed producers, it's something that the registrant said that, that, they, would, uh, that they would pursue and they'd be able to do it very easily. But basically, the, the take-home here on the pseudomonas syringa on the peas is that disease seed lot, yeah, it increases your risk, but it's even, as long as you're planting a seed lot with only a moderate level of seedborne pseudomonas syringa, i.e. from a field pea crop that had some bacterial blight in it, but it wasn't, wasn't severe bacterial blight. You know, as long as, you're, as, as long as that's what the seed lot is like, this disease seed is probably only increasing your, your severity by 10, 15% maximum. And you can make up for the associated yield loss with a streptomycin seed treatment. Thanks so much to Dr. Michael Vunch and Montana farmer Chris Westergaard, both for taking the time to be a part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. I hope that gave you a lot to think about when it comes to agronomically-based disease management and pulses. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend who might be interested in pulses. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we hope that you'll subscribe and we look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. Mm-hmm.